In this episode, I'm joined by Har Prakash Khalsa, artist, meditation teacher, and founder of the Expand Contract YouTube channel, which hosts the video teachings of Shinzen Young. Har Prakash discusses his early life, including 10 years of heavy drug use, near-death experiences in the Andes in India, and a life-changing encounter with Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga. We learn of Harprakash's research into Yogi Bhajan's questionable historical claims, and how Harprakash reconciled his own practice and teaching with the many allegations of abuse made against his once guru. Harprakash discusses his decades of study with Shinzen Young, and shares more thoughts on spiritual scandal when recounting his own time with Joshu Sasaki Roshi. Then, as an accomplished interviewer himself, Harprakash gives me a set of 12 questions to ask him. Harprakash reveals that these are the questions he's often wished I would ask my guests on this podcast, and he gamely submits to answering them himself. The questions cover topics such as stream entry, enlightenment, suffering, the self, and more. So without further ado, Harprakash Khalsa. Harprakash, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. So you've had really quite a journey through many different spiritual traditions with many uh, quite prominent and well-respected teachers. But I'm curious, how was it you first became involved in uh, meditation and things of that nature? Well, I think early on, I was always, uh, well, I, I had a, I could sense how basically screwed up things were. And uh, I had a kind of an existential questioning, you know, what's the point? <laughs> I mean, I used to, I was the kid that, I was the teenager that went to around during parties and said, hey, what makes life worth living for you? It's none of anybody wanted to hear at a party, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it started. And then when I was 16, I, I, I read Zen Flesh, Zen Bones by Paul Reps. And that really struck a chord that was like, oh, okay. You know, these are my people kind of thing. <laughs> um, so, so that's kind of, that got the interest early on. And then um, when I was... I don't know, 22, 23, so I'm, I'm going to be 61 soon, a couple of weeks. Uh, when I was 22 or 23, I went to a, a Zen temple in Toronto, and that's where I really got my first meditation instruction. So that's where I started. Yeah. Some people report with that book, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, sort of opening experience reading that book, because if I recall, part of it at least is, um, isn't it part of it, chapter on Moon on? And there's also some stories about various different people's awakenings, something like that, if I recall, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, quite an influential book. I'm curious if you had any particular experiences, uh, mystical experiences, perhaps, or meditative experiences spontaneously in those years that's often cited as a reason people are steered in this direction. I don't know if I would use the word mystical, but before that, before I ever read Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, or asked people funny questions at parties, uh, I remember as a kid being, I was home sick one day from school and I was lying in bed. And I remember like, you know, just kind of, you know, looking at the ceiling and, 
I started to like, you know, the, the visual started to change on the ceiling. And so it was just like the sensory awareness started playing with itself. I didn't really feel like I was playing with it. And then I would close my eyes and get this very peculiar for a kid anyways, sensation of I was lying on my bed, but the bed would like completely flip over. And then sometimes it would stay there and sometimes it would flip back again. And, and that was pretty weird from one perspective, but it wasn't that weird for me. So <laughs> it was kind of familiar in a way. And, and that's the thing that happened over and over again. There was kind of a, a recognition, if you will, that I knew this or this was somehow part of my world and I didn't know how it fit with everything else, but I was kind of at home. So, yeah. I, had, I, I guess I, I could I could share one more thing. Early on, um, I was uh, we, <laughs> we were talking. You mentioned a little bit before we started recording about near death experience. So I was in when I was twenty four, I believe. So um, nineteen eighty four, I was in India and I was working with children there who were going to a yogic school. And uh, I was there for, I think, three months working with the kids. And I got very sick from, I'm assuming, something I ate or something in the food. And so anyways, I stayed in my room the whole day and everybody else, you know, did their thing. I was absolved from my responsibilities. <coughs> At the time, I was doing a, um, the same meditation every day. And I was on like day, I don't know, 450 or something like that. I was going to do it for a thousand days. And uh, I was also doing these three prayers. They were Sikh prayers. But I was, I was so sick. It's like I just didn't want to do it. But I hadn't missed a day. As you know, I did it in like planes, trains, buses, that whole, whatever that movie was. I did it. <laughs> and anyways, I did my meditation. And at... The end of the meditation, I was just so exhausted. I just, you know, I was sitting up and I just like fell back to the bed. And when I fell back to the bed, the proverbial tunnel opened up. And uh, it was like, I would describe it as the, uh, uh, as the warp speed, you know, in Star Wars, where like the, no, in Star Trek, sorry, where the, the stars go like, like this, right? And so that was the sense. And basically what happened is, I was in a really, really sick body, but when that happened, I was totally in that moment freed from that sick body. And there was this huge contrast that happened. And as I was going through the tunnel or my consciousness was, or the tunnel was you know, merging with me or whatever you wanna say it, somehow the thought came up, oh, it's probably a good time to, you know, focus on your teacher, Harpakash. <laughs> so, so I focused on his face. And as soon as I did that, I like, the impression was I slammed back into my body, which was still really sick again. So I went from being, you know, extremely sick to being like total freedom in that moment, and then totally slammed back into that 
sick body. And uh, yeah, I was really pissed with my teacher after that. So, so. <laughs> and that's Yogi Bhajan, is it? That was Yogi Bhajan at the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pick up the biographical <laughs> thread. So you're in your early 20s and you receive some uh, Zen meditation instructions. Yeah. Yeah. So I was uh, working with a teacher called Samu Sunim. So this was Korean Zen in Toronto. And uh, uh, that was the original, my original introduction. And then after that, I went traveling kind of, you know, through Central and South America and had some experiences there. And during those experiences, I realized that, okay, I think I need to get serious. I think I need to work with a teacher here. Um, back then I was tripping out on, oh, I'm gonna visit all these power spots, like, you know, Machu Picchu and all this kind of stuff. And what happened is I got, you know, I like to do side trails and make my own trails. And so basically I got lost uh, somewhere off the Inca trail. I was walking and and it got was getting dark and I was on I think I was above the trail but where I was um, it was a steep angle on the side of the you know one of the mountains and it was really too dark to proceed and it was too dark to go down so. I was, I was following this, uh, this kind of yellow pipe and I thought this is gonna lead me if I just follow the pipe because I found the pipe, I said, it's gotta go somewhere. And anyway, so what I ended up doing is I had to kind of strap myself in for the night. So I took my belt and kind of tied it around a tree and tied that to myself and uh, hoped that I wasn't gonna like slide down the mountain at nighttime. And that's when I had that, oh, okay. It's not really about power spots. I really need to be able to work with the energy in myself. And um, so that's what led to um, studying with Yogi Bhajan in Kundalini Yoga. When I came back, that's what I ended up doing. What do you mean it led you to the idea of working with the energy itself? Were you experiencing a lot of, I, I presume, intense emotion being stranded there in the, in the middle of the jungle? Yeah. So what, what became prominent was the important thing here is not, you know, out there. The important thing is to have a conscious relationship with the body-mind behavioral conditioning that I'm walking around with, including the energies in that body-mind behavioral conditioning. So... What was it about that experience that led you to that conclusion? Yeah, well, at nighttime when I was uh, when I was kind of strapped in, so to speak, um, it was so I'm up in the Andes Mountains, so in the you know in the Urubamba Valley, <laughs> and mountains everywhere. It's dark. The stars are drop dead gorgeous out there. There's zero light pollution, so they just sing. So there was that. And there's way off in the distance, there was this little village with like lights twinkling. And it was just it's kind of so magical that um, I went back and forth between being freaked out 
that I was, you know, strapped to the side of a mountain. <laughs> and uh, there was a chance I could have slid off the mountain. There was a chance. And this totally wonderful, awe-inspiring uh, view, scene that was in front of me. And I would go back and forth between the two. And I, in that moment, it's like, you know, I really want to be able to work with what's in the way of this. Um, because it was, the, again, the contrast, <laughs> the contrast was so big. So, yeah. So you came back and what happened next? First of all, how did you get rescued? And then, and then what happened next? <laughs> Oof, this is, this could be a long story. Okay. Uh, well, I didn't get rescued. I just stayed strapped in and continued in the morning following that yellow pipe. And it did lead me eventually into Machu Picchu. So from there. Um, um, yeah, I, could, I guess I could jump ahead into my return. There's a whole other thing that happened in between, but. Uh, what, what happened? Part of what I was doing at the time was I had kind of been at the near the end of 10, a 10 year drug run, like doing drugs. And one of the things that happened on that trip was I had, it wasn't my, the reason for the trip, but it, it happened during the trip. I realized that, you know, why are people spending all this money for stuff like, uh, let's say, you know, cocaine, which was really high when they could just like go to the source. So when I was in, uh, in Bolivia, so the Machu Picchu story is in Peru. So now I'm in Bolivia. Um, I basically found a really great source for cocaine. And the source was in the Bolivian jail it was a Canadian who was imprisoned for selling cocaine. And the thing to know about that Bolivian jail is that when you're there, you have to pay for everything. So as an inmate, you have to pay for your toilet paper, you have to pay for your food, you have to pay for everything. <laughs> and so how is a person going to pay for that? Well, if they don't have a source, if their you know, friends and family run out of money, then what they do is they, at the time anyways, I don't know if that's the case now, they sold cocaine. And uh, how did they get the cocaine? Well, when you went in the prison, the guards uh, checked you to make sure you weren't bringing in cocaine. But when you left the prison, they did not check you. So you were free to buy the cocaine. And so I was doing that and uh, this was near the end of my trip and decided to come back to attend uh, my cousin's wedding. And when I came back, I kind of did a, you know, I went through withdrawal basically on that trip back and it was on the cheap. So I was like sleeping in airports and, you know, doing all that stuff and came back to Toronto and, uh, you know, had a, did a few, had a few LSD experiences. And then after that, it was like, okay, I think I've had enough of this, <laughs> enough of the drugs. <laughs> and I had uh, met a friend of mine who was 
from art school. And I said, hey, what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm doing this great thing called Kundalini Yoga. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And so I basically switched, got off drugs, and I switched it for Kundalini Yoga is what happened. So that kind of began that transition. Which is not an uncommon switch, is it? Heavy drug uh, use to Kundalini Yoga is quite quite a common yeah, because the because the way that the the yoga is done, you can you move things very quickly, and people can kind of um, at least at first get very high with it. That's the sense of it. So it's an easy for some people. It's an easy switch to you know shift from um, shift from things you're taking as far as drugs to creating pleasant states let's say um yeah you've mentioned the 10-year drug run what's mm -hmm. what, what sort of drugs were you doing during that time <laughs> Oof. Uh, Wait, did you and did you say you were in believe you were <laughs> you were dealing cocaine no, or just no, taking no. cocaine no i was taking cocaine oh. <laughs> i wasn't dealing uh i was everything you know almost everything not quite everything, but I mean, I remember doing really crazy, and looking back now, crazy stuff. So most kinds of drugs, including hallucinogenics, but like, for instance, I remember when I first started going to the, the Zen temple, I would go to the Zen temple and I would meditate. And then on weekends, I would go with friends and we would do really now that when I look at it, scary stuff. So we would, you know, put something in a needle, somebody would hit it up and then they, you know, pass the needle to the next person. And then the next person would, you know, maybe take like a part of the match back and sharpen the needle a little bit or something like that. And, and then they would hit it up and then they'd pass the needle to the next person. The needle would actually travel around the same needle. Right. So Anyway, so I did some crazy stuff like that. Uh, mostly, not too much of that. Mostly it was, um, you know, pot and hash and that kind of thing. Mushrooms, LSD, all that stuff back then. And then, uh, and then shortly after arriving back though, I kind of quit everything. So the 10 years ended and uh, haven't done that since, so. And you were rejecting heroin, I suppose, with those needles. No, it wasn't heroin. That's the one thing I never did. So it was uh, was other stuff. I think it. I think that at that time that was a combination of uh, PCP, which is like horse tranquilizer, and um, and it might have been cocaine or something. But it was really a crazy mix. Um, yeah. Anyways, I don't what? recommend it. <laughs> What led you to experiment so heavily with drugs during that decade? I think it was a combo platter. I think one part was I was miserable. I was kind of depressed and uh, my thinking was driving me crazy and I wanted relief from that. So that was one side. But the other side is I had read some Huxley <laughs> and you know the, the Doors of Perception and that had a big influence on me uh, because of, I guess, these other experiences and, you know, what I was reading from him and what the drugs did, basically, I not only got a relief from the misery 
that I was experiencing. But of course, that gives a kind of uh, allows a person to jump out of the system, and then you can kind of look back at the system and say, "Oh, okay, so there's a whole world that I can explore here." And so that was a nice transfer into meditation and yoga at that point, because that's another way to explore it. Yeah. All right. So you went with your friend to a Kundalini yoga class. And so pick up the story from there. Yeah. So this is now 1984. Um, now, when I got back, is part of my choice was, uh, okay, do I go across town back to the Zen center where I started? Or do I go the four doors away from where I live to the Sikh ashram that where they teach Kundalini yoga? And just knowing my nature at the time, I would take the you know, easiest path as far as you know, showing up to a class. So I started going to the ashram and uh, it was pretty weird, you know, when I first went there, and but it was interesting, and I was open to that. Um, and I remember going to my one of my first classes, and I said to the teacher, "Hey, you know, why why are you wearing that thing on your head?" And he said, "Well, it's a turban, first of all." <laughs> and he kind of, you know, said, "My hair is tied up, and that when the hair is tied up like that," and he gave me this whole kind of esoteric explanation of. It helps to attract the energy from outside and it pulls the energy up inside and it helps things to balance and da, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And, and I said, oh, okay, so you have like hair under that. And he said, yeah. I said, how long is your hair? And he said like, oh, it's like, you know, down to my bum or something like that. And I'm like, cool. You know, I was thinking to myself, I was born in 1960. I kind of missed the sixties. So this is kind of cool. He's like a hippie. He's, you know, wearing a turban. So yeah. So anyway, so I did the I did the class and part of the class, you know, you're stirring up all this energy and uh, and getting high. But at the time, I was on a quest to realize the truth. That was like my burning thing. I need to realize the truth. <laughs> Everything was about that. And as part of the he kind of ended the class with these as is traditional in that way of with doing three sat noms. So sat means truth and nam means identity. And I didn't know that. I said, hey, what's the thing we just said, sat nam? And he said, truth is your identity. And it's like, I was, because I was on this burning quest for truth. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm home kind of thing, right? <laughs> so that's how it started. So then I started exploring that. Now, how long have you been practicing and teaching Kundalini yoga? Well, I started in 1984 and uh, is kind of an off and on practice throughout that time. Um, and teaching, well, I started teaching fairly early. Um, back then, there wasn't any big teacher trainings. <laughs> you were just, you know, you learned a few things and you started teaching. And so, one of the people in the ashram, so four doors where I'm living, you know, came up to me one day. It's not so long after I'd been practicing. I think I'd been practicing for just like three months. And he said, hey, you want to take over my class? And I said, I don't know, where's your class? And he said, oh, it's in the Don Gel. And I'm like, oh, Don Gel. 
yeah, that sounds interesting. So I started teaching in the Don jail and uh, that was, I loved that. That was great because my, <laughs> my ultra badass ego, you know, I was just a skinny kid at the time. I was 130 pounds or something, but my badass alter ego just thought it was the best thing ever. And uh, somehow I really connected with, with the guys in there. I mean, they're in there. They got nothing to do all day. Don jail is in Toronto is a pretty heavy jail. Uh, basically people are like lifting weights and exercising a lot of days. So they don't go crazy. And also so they can protect themselves and, these guys don't want to be in a Kundalini yoga class. They're just doing it to get a break from everybody else. So when they were in there, I mean, the very first thing they're looking at this 130 pound kid that they could, you know, eat for breakfast. Um, so what I did is was something very simple, which was I had them uh, just stand like this and really simple, just, just do this with their finger. So just do this back and forth with the arms out like this. And so I did that in front of them and I said, okay, guys, you know, do this. And they're like, ah, we're not gonna, like, come on, give me the finger, right? Give me the finger, the middle finger. And so they started doing that. They were all muscle bound. And then I started teasing them. I started saying, let's see if you can keep up with me. And of course we can keep up with you. But what they, of course, you know, you guys lift all these weights and you can't even lift your middle finger at me. Come on, right? The thing is, although they had all this muscle, their nervous systems were shot. And that's really a nervous system exercise. So their arms are all shaking, you know, and they have to like put them down. So anyway, so after that, basically I got their attention. And then after that, they were willing to try stuff because they're like, basically any edge you can get when you're incarcerated is a good thing to have. So they were like, you know, this skinny kid that I'm really pissed off with now has something that I want. So I had their attention. <laughs> so that's how I started teaching. <laughs> and then uh, probably for the last 20, oh, I guess around 20 years, I've been teaching with my wife. So she does a lot of Kundalini yoga teacher trainings and I have my specialty. So I teach two weekends, at least up until now. Now I've kind of thinking if I'm going to retire from teaching that but I would teach the history and philosophy of kundalini yoga and then I would also teach the mind and meditation aspect those are kind of my specialty weekends so I've been doing that for about the last 20 years did you have any personal contact with Yogi Bhajan the founder of that system yeah yeah back in 1984 when I first started practicing um, you go to these big solstices that were either in New Mexico or in uh, Florida. It was like a summer solstice in New Mexico and winter solstice in Florida. And uh, he gave me my name. So uh, he would also travel around and do what was called white tantric yoga, which is done in pairs, done in partners. And uh, so that happened for basically until he couldn't travel around so much. And I did a lot of those white tantric yogas, as well as going to some of those solstices and having some, you know, personal interactions with them. Yeah. Yeah, interesting guy. 
Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm interested by that. You said you've had personal interactions with them. I'm curious if there's anything of note there. And also, of course, you'll be aware, given your specialty of the history and philosophy of Kundalini Yoga, about the recent challenges to its um, at least its internal narrative, the narr- yeah. the story, the history that Yogi Bhajan presented. There's been some challenges as to that, the origins, if you want, of the method. Yeah. And also, um, of course, there have been uh, lately quite a number of controversies about Yogi Bhajan himself personally in terms of his conduct and yeah. so yeah. on, uh, abusing uh, ac- accusations of abuse, etc. I'm curious if you have any reflections on that, given you knew him personally or had some personal mm-hmm. encounters with him and also are a student of the history and philosophy of the method. Yeah, well, it was the same as when I studied with Sasaki Roshi in the sense that these teachers were very, they had a very powerful energy. They had a very powerful field and you could, uh, people were changed just being in their presence because of that energy, because of that field. So that's on the one hand. And then there's also them being this kind of open conduit for a lot of very deep, profound wisdom to come through. Um, So I I definitely experienced all that from both of those teachers who are in the kind of the same, you know, fallen, (laughs) so to speak, group. Um, So I experienced that uh, really it was unconditional love, being kind of bathed in unconditional love. And then there's this other side which is the more, um, we all have uneven development and I haven't met a teacher yet who I don't, haven't either seen their un, you know, uh, uneven development or sense there's some uneven development. Uh, so, I mean, that's the big, for some people that's the big mindfuck is how could this, person be apparently so have such a deep practice or such a deep realization and then act out in ways that are either unethical or in some cases horrific if the allegations are true and I think a lot of the allegations probably are true Um, I just assume that that's the case Uh, you know I give it the benefit of the doubt that that's the case I think there's a huge lesson there. Uh, Part of it is, yes, to take, to help the people who have gone through this and who have been traumatized by it. That's one part. That's kind of the responsibility part that I think comes with the territory, which I spent a lot of time doing over the last, since this came out around Yogi Bhajan with our students who've been in the trainings with us and actually outside of the trainings as well. So that's one piece, but the other piece is to not in any way to excuse their behavior, but to grow up as a student and recognize that, yes, we have uneven development. And if, if you don't think we don't have, we have uneven development, then that's a projection that's probably gonna get you in a lot of trouble. And at some point you're gonna need to eat that projection. So can we, in a sense, get the good stuff from the teacher and separate out the not good stuff or 
begin to recognize the uneven development earlier because it's come up so much, we can you know, look for the signs and then make a decision. Do I wanna continue studying with this teacher or not because of that? And some people can, cannot reconcile that. Yeah, so. What about the challenges to the historical narrative that Yogi Bhajan presented in terms of where he, uh, where, where the system comes from? Yeah. Uh, basically, there's a, I mean, I have like a, I do, I have a whole weekend PowerPoint on this. So <laughs> that I do with people. Um, there's, we just need to look at the indiscrepancies which have been fleshed out more and more now. So there were always some indiscrepancies and in people, for some people it would bother them, but most people were fine about it because they were getting so much benefit from the yoga. It's like, oh, who cares? I don't really, I don't really care. So, but I had to reconcile that teaching history and philosophy of Kundalini yoga. So I just, you know, went sleuthing and would just put up, okay, you know, here's what Yogi Bhajan said on the one hand. And on the other hand, here's kind of the evidence that I've unearthed. And isn't that interesting? What do you make of that? And I would just ask the students, you know, what do you, what do you make of that? <laughs> and uh, and all, all interesting responses. I mean, some students would be really upset. Other students would be like, I don't care because I get so much out of the yoga. I don't really care where it comes from, you know? I mean, I can, I basically divided it up into, this is what we know for sure. Here's the evidence. This is what we don't know for sure, but could be. So I can connect the, a lot of the Tibetan yoga to Kundalini yoga very easily. There's a huge overlap between the two. So then it was just like, okay, digging all that stuff up and then showing that side by side. Hey, what does this look like? This is a Tibetan yoga sequence. Does that look like one of our Kriyas, you know? Or, hey, this is the early, this is, look at this guy teaching in what looks like a circus demonstration show. Guess what? He was one of Yogi Bhajan's teachers. Does any of this look familiar to you? And so I'd show the video of them teaching. And of course, everybody recognized that there's certain things that are done in Kundalini yoga over and over again. So my approach was just to unearth everything I could to put it all on the table. And then at the end to say, now you're gonna to have to decide, given all that you know, and I attempted to put out, to paint a really broad detailed picture. How do you relate to that? Is that gonna affect your practice? If so, so be it, for better or worse. And so that was my approach, just to be really honest with people. In summary, the, the, the main, the thrust of the criticism is that, the critique is that Yogi Bhajan concocted a story for the purposes of branding and, and uh, to become a sort of spiritual star and concocted a fake lineage tradition uh, with teachers that difficult to, prove they existed and so on and so forth, and perhaps cobbled together from bits and pieces he'd picked up in all sorts of places. Um, this is the, the general thrust of the critique. I'm curious, could you give an example of one of the most egregious conflicts between Yogi Bhajan's claims and the evidence that you found through your sleuthing and investigation? 
And also, I'm curious what you make of it, given that you practiced and propagated that system for so long, when you started to notice these things, not to see these things, how you uh, resolved that. Let me take the second part first, second part. Uh, so I've been doing these teacher trainings with my wife for about 20 years. And at the start of every training, we do a circle and we always ask, you know, what's your experience with Kundalini Yoga? You know, why are you here? Why would you like to do this training? And we hear story after story after story of how it's changed people's lives for the better. So that's the bottom line is if it changes people's lives for the better in profound ways, and I've heard, you know, probably thousands of stories at this point or close to thousands of stories, then it's either going to live or die by people's relationship with it and the experiences they have. Now, if it gets in the way, all this other shit, then fine, you know, let it die. If it has to die, that's fine. It's, it's not, there's lots of ways to practice. Um, Myself, I started shifting away from Kundalini Yoga more when I started working with Shenzhen 20 years ago. So although I taught with my wife, I did very little of the practice. I still do some, some Kundalini Yoga, but it's mostly not Kundalini Yoga. It's mostly my other practice, my you know Shenzhen practice. So that wasn't that hard to reconcile for me because I had this other practice, which was my main practice. So I never felt like it was, um, uh, it probably didn't hit me as hard as some people, although, you know, I definitely did my share of crying and grieving around it when stuff came out. Um, and during the period where it came out, I saw it as my duty to put out the all the evidence that I could unearth the best I could. And it's complicated. It's not a black and white thing. Uh, you know, I was ha having some, even some correspondence with some scholars, some of the scholars that have the criticisms and they had said certain things and uh, you know, a lot of what they were saying was true. But when I would come up with a piece of evidence that would contradict what they were saying, I would say, well, what do you make of this then? And then I'd notice that, oh, okay, if that didn't fit their black and white narrative, they're not going to accept that. They're not going to use it. And then they keep on talking about all this stuff. And wait a minute, I just gave you a piece of evidence that contradicted that. Can you at least say, and somebody showed me this piece of evidence, and now I'm not sure what to think because there's both sides. No, they didn't do that, right? So it's complicated. And again, I'm not defending Yogi Bhajan. I think that how he came up with what he came up with. It was a combination of, he studied with some teachers and I you know, show that evidence in my, uh, where I have it in my PowerPoint in, my, in that weekend that I teach. But he was also incredibly intuitive. So I have some, some stories he told are definitely not true. And then it becomes, okay, is this not okay? To, for him to tell 
because it's not factually true? Or can we take this as a teaching story that's not true now that we know it's not true? Do we need to throw it out? Can we keep it? What do we do with it? So I'm always looking at the different sides to look at things and how can we either use it to our, our advantage or discard it if it's not useful, you know? I think that he just downloaded a lot of stuff and whether he could see auras and come up with these, you know, Kriyas, just looking at the group field and then adjusted for that. I have no idea about any of that stuff, but he was incredibly powerful. He was incredibly intuitive. So I think it was a combination of teachers that he learned from just his intuition, just downloading the stuff. And some people, you know, if you believe in past lives would say some of it came from his past lives, but I, don't, I usually don't go down that route personally, so. And perhaps my last question on it, you know, the, the tricky thing with Kundalini Yoga, of course, is it's not just a practice, it's, it's a lifestyle, it's a dress code, it's, you know, really quite an identity, it can be anyway. But why do you think, if you had to speculate, Mm. that it seems like Yogi Bhajan fabricated so much of his history in such a dramatic way. The usual critique is it was done for branding purposes to gain authority and significance and influence in convincing people to become a part of his, his group and support his uh, organization and so on. That's the usual critique. And the stories that appear to be fabricated certainly seem to have achieved that result. But why do you think it seems that so much was fabricated? Uh, again, I think it's a combo platter. I think it's my guess, I don't know, but my guess is that part of it was branding. So in other words, when people say that, they're thinking, well, he intentionally did this, right? So that, right. from that perspective, yeah, part of it was probably branding. That's what was going around a lot of that at the time, all these teachers coming over from the 60s. but. I think part of it was potentially coming out of his trauma. So that was driving and distorting some of what he was saying. And certainly the area, those areas that we're talking about, the fabrication stuff and also the trauma stuff around the allegations of behavior, which I, you know, again, I think are probably true i'm going to give it i'm going to say yeah it's true there's just so many stories that it's hard to think it otherwise that it's true and i think that's from trauma and this is the real tricky quite tricky part here because this gets this is going to get me in trouble maybe but I'll say it anyways from a certain perspective Again, I in no way endorse any of those behaviors or, you know, the lying or the distortion, all any of that stuff. I don't endorse any of that. You know, let's call that out for sure. And let's also take care of, in whatever way we can, of people who've been harmed by that. Uh, and from a certain perspective, I can see that this was driven and distorted by his own trauma. And if I ask myself, if I had that traumatic body-mind behavioral conditioning, 
might I have behaved the same way? It's a tough question to ask. But when I asked myself, the answer is, of course, if I had that body-mind traumatic behavioral conditioning, I might have behaved that same way. And when I feel into that, I can feel compassion for him at the same time as being totally um, pissed with him. So it's not black and white for me. What is the specific traumatic body-mind conditioning that you're thinking of? I, I don't know. Um, again, I can only go by stories. Uh, but that, you know, he was in the army, uh, in the Indian army. And the way that in any culture people are raised is going to affect them. And I know that he had, you know, certain views on, on things. Like early on, he was he was rather pejorative around uh, same-sex couples, for instance. And then he changed over time. But that's an example of his conditioning, for instance. So I don't have any specific stories that I know that are true that led to what I'm supposing is trauma. But I don't think you... If I'm going to assume that uh, that a lot of those allegations are true, and if those assuming that those allegations are true, that has to be driven by trauma. It has to. You can't abuse people that bad and be healthy. It's just not possible. Unless you're a psychopath. But that's my point what leads to a psychopath usually it's trauma so yeah if you don't have a conscience there's a reason why you don't have a conscience in those areas so well now we're getting into some very <laughs> we're, we're certainly getting into some thorny territory and i appreciate you being willing to discuss it and sort of you know offer your your considered opinion on it there's this book, of course, that many people will be familiar with, Bill Hamilton's Saints, saints, and saints and Psychopaths. <laughs> so it's no, you know, the more we talk about saints, the inevitable emergence of the discussion towards talking about psychopaths seems to, seems to occur. So, so this leads to, you know, what is the big lesson for me? It's like, okay, so all this shit happened. And what's the big lesson? Well, the big lesson is... We all have body-mind behavioral conditioning. We all have uneven development. So how can any, how can all of us who are on the meditative or spiritual path, if you want to use that word, who are potentially getting in a place where we can be liberated from the body-mind behavioral conditioning, how can we make sure that we're not just transcending or being liberated from the body-mind behavioral conditioning, but the body-mind behavioral conditioning is still driven, distorted, or repressed. How can, in other words, you know, I like to use that, the Wilbur, how can we make sure our wake up is balanced with our grow up, with our psychological and relational um, issues? That's the big question. And that's how can, if we want to, you know, use the E word, how can 
enlightenment to be integrated in a balanced way. That's to me the lesson. That's the view. We all have uneven development. Now, how can we take care of that? Yeah. Okay, so next you mentioned that you encountered Shinzen. How did you encounter Shinzen and, and how did that relationship develop? Uh, yeah, so I was living in a Sikh ashram at the time. My, uh, I have three adult children. They're all born in the Sikh ashram. And uh, I'm also an artist. So I had a, an exhibition in Toronto and I was walking downtown after the exhibition, bumped into a friend and, and you know, we got talking, what are you doing here? And because I had, um, by then I'd moved up here where I am in, our, in Owen Sound, a few hours north of Toronto. And uh, I said, I had this exhi art exhibition, you know? And she's like, oh, what's it about? And, and I'm, um, I don't know, I guess, I don't know, impermanence? And she said, impermanence, do you know Shinzen Young? <laughs> and I said, who? <laughs> and she said, have I got the tape set for you, the cassette tapes back then, so for the science of enlightenment. So she gave me those, gave me a set of her set actually of those. <laughs> and I listened to two particular sections caught my attention. One was the, uh, um, the realm of power and which explained a lot of things about what I had been noticing because it's always been a hobby of mine to study various spiritual groups and how they screw up and how teachers screw up and that kind of thing. So there was that side and then the whole talk about impermanence basically which was why she gave me the tape set originally and then it just became obvious that oh, okay I got to study with this guy and uh yeah so I started studying with Shenzhen and uh actually one of my first meetings with him I mentioned that story uh that happened in India that I shared earlier on and uh Basically, I said, you know, what that brought up for me at the time in India was after that, every time I meditated, I would just cry, 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 cry. And I, you know, back then you sent letters to Yogi Bhajan. So I sent a letter to Yogi Bhajan and said, hey, what do I do? He said, meditate more. And so my response was, you know, fuck you, right? I'm not going to meditate more. So I went into therapy instead, where, you know, they were much more um gentle about <laughs> experiencing like terror and things like that um so i i basically worked with a therapist anyway so my meditation practice was definitely impacted by that experience basically what was happening was my thinking mind i was starting to break the addiction to thinking is what was happening and as part of that, my heart was opening. So I was feeling more. So the feeling would get bigger and the thinking was starting to, and to lose my thinking, because that was my basic organizing principle as I was a big thinker, that was terrifying. So I shared this story with Shinzen, not in the um, meaning that I just shared with you, but I shared the, the story, what happened and how it affected me early. And he said, you know, Harpakash, I would have told you, I would have said to you the same thing that Yogi Bhajan said, but I would have given you context. And 
in that moment, it was like, yeah, this is the teacher for me because I've always wanted to know what my options are between the surface and the source of consciousness at any given strata. And I think this is the guy that can do it and it turned out to be so. Can you take us through a little bit the arc of your relationship with Shenzhen? Many people will be aware of you as the founder of the Expand Contract YouTube channel, which has popularized Shenzhen to an audience on YouTube um, in YouTube's early stages. And I think introduced him to a whole new uh, set of people, including myself, actually. I first encountered him through your YouTube videos. So could you give us a bit of a summary of the arc of that relationship and some of the, uh, I mean, I know it's a couple of decades, and your own personal journey? Uh, spiritually speaking, over that time period? Sure. So I think I started with Shenzhen like 1999, I think. And uh, I had I'd done my tantric yoga, which is like a day or a weekend, depending on when it was, then they were teaching it. But I'd never done, you know, eight days, 10 days, two week intensive meditations. And uh, certainly not silent. And back then, the retreats were silent and most people no eye contact. Now it's different. <laughs> now there's a social at the beginning, a social at the end. Um, you can have eye, you're, you know, if you want to have eye contact and send out loving kindness. But back then it was no, the eyes were down. You're just seeing people's feet for like eight days. <laughs> so it was pretty hardcore. You know, the joke back then was Shinzen is a friend of mine said, Shinzen, so enlightenment or bust. You know, he was into deconstruction at the time. There wasn't actually, he wasn't teaching loving kindness in those retreats. It was all deconstruction, deconstruction, deconstruction. And uh, so early, I think it was 2002, 2003, something like that, fairly early after I'd been studying with him, um, I... I started having uh, experiences of uh, impermanence, what got me interested to start with, and uh, kind of things started, you know, disappearing basically from my body when I was sitting. The sense of, oh, you know, my arms missing, and I'd open up my, you know, yeah, my arms there, okay, right, all that kind of stuff. So that started happening, and uh, I went to this retreat early and I did service. I helped kind of set things up and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I had been talking with Shenzhen about this. So, hey, you know, my arm disappeared kind of thing. And he's like, oh, cool, you know, kind of thing and on the phone. And so it's like, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, you're going on the right course. Now, I have to say, I knew nothing about Buddhism really at this point. I wasn't coming from that tradition. I hadn't, I hadn't studied it. And, uh, Whenever Shenzhen would say, oh, you know, you're experiencing this kind of thing, or sounds like you're experiencing this, I would either not know what he was talking about, or, and or I would just like, oh, maybe I should look it up. I don't know if I should look it up. I'll just keep on practicing. I don't know, whatever. So at this retreat, that's, that started kind of happening to the max, and Shenzhen was um, like a godsend. He was my lifeline, and at that point, I trusted him enough that I was willing to suspend any doubts that I had about what was going on, that I just continued to do what he suggested that I do. And so going through that experience developed 
I would say a very deep trust bond with Shenzhen. And then after that is when uh, I, well, I was listening to a Dharma talk actually. And in the Dharma talk, he said, he was talking about enlightenment. And he said, you know, people talk about sudden enlightenment all the time, but there's also gradual enlightenment. And I noticed that many of my students, they go through a gradual enlightenment process. They're not even aware of it. And so I've had a few moments during Dharma talks where I've like literally stood up out of my chair and kind of looked around at everybody. Like, are you hearing what he's saying in my head? I'm doing this. <laughs> and that's when I know this is either a big insight or I need to do something to make sure other people can hear this. So, so at the time I was uh, at a retreat with my son who was 13. He was going to retreats with me. He did four retreats in two years. And you know, as I was mentioning before, he'd come early and Shenzhen would teach him advanced math. And anyways, we're in my bedroom and I'm interviewing Shenzhen. So I did an audio interview with him that ended up being called On Enlightenment, an interview with Shenzhen Young. And uh, because I wanted to unpack that sudden versus gradual piece. And then at the end of the interview, I asked him, hey, why, aren't, why isn't somebody videoing you? And he said, people video me all the time. And I said, well, not really. You know, I mean, like really video you. And I happened to have my video camera with me. So I said, can I video your Dharma talk tonight? And he said, yeah, you can video me whenever you want. I said, okay. So I, that's when I did my first video that started the Expand Contract channel that I put up. And kind of that's how it started. And then as soon as I did that, I realized, oh, okay, so I really want to get all his, his nuts and bolts, his building blocks recorded before he dies. Because if he dies, it's all going to be gone. It's too important. So I just started videoing him. And then what that meant is during the retreat, I was for long stretches of time locked up in a room with him. And uh, doing these videos in various ways they ended up being about 200 videos and I ended up viewing him in like six different cities kind of throughout Canada and the states um, so that turned into the expand contract channel and then at some point I I stopped videoing him. I said, I'm not gonna video you. He said, no, he said, why aren't you videoing me anymore? And I said, I'm only gonna video you when you have something new to say. I have all your building blocks. You're just rearranging names and stuff like that, but the building blocks are all there. Uh, and that's true. So when people go on the expand contract channel, if they're a, a self learner, they can piece together all they need to practice. Um, if they're a self learner. Now, there's so many videos that people can get lost in there. And I understand that. So um, yeah, so I've attempted to, in my own way, take the best of Shenzhen's teachings and actually put that into my own curriculum, which is a whole other thing. Uh, but yeah, over the years, I just spent a lot of time with Shenzhen, you know, from being locked in the room with him to doing sweat lodges with him, um, you know, meeting his mom on one occasion in LA. 
So getting to see the Shenzhen that wasn't on stage, basically. And I, I got to see him as a person, as uh, alongside his, the depth of wisdom that comes through him. I got to see, you know, his little boy and his uh, many axels and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and that was great. And I, I wish that we could all see that with the teachers we study with. Do you have any more um, to say about Shinzen the man? Uh, well, he's you know he's brilliant. He's brilliant, and he's a he's a maverick in that he creates his own systems and ways of putting things together. So that's his kind of the teacher brilliant kind of stuff. I think you can when he's teaching, you can see the man come through. So he can be very quirky. He can be very funny. Um, he can sometimes default to uh, long-winded um, math equations that lose people when he's talking, <laughs> and and that's the man coming out, you know, of the teacher. It's like. You know, he doesn't always really need to do that kind of thing, which is kind of what I got to do in the expand contract channels. I got to edit. So I could just edit like, you know, in that the time it was 10 minute chunks. So I could edit like the 10 minute what's essential and I could take out all the other stuff, you know, even though people, some people loved all the other stuff. I thought it was like potent and more approachable if it was short and sweet and there weren't, you know, wanderings left and right and all that kind of stuff um and it ought to be mentioned that in those days on youtube there was a 10 minute limit so it wasn't yes, necessity to edit them. yes that's that's true yeah yeah but you know i i um yeah i just got to see that in some areas he's really developed and in other areas he's not developed just like the rest of us yeah so and, and that's okay. I mean, I could completely accept that with Shenzhen. There's been, as far as I know, no egregious behavior. He's been above board all around, and thank goodness. But uh, yet he has, like the rest of us, uneven development. That's just the way it goes. So, and I'm willing to, in his case, because he's, because uh, he's, you know, I think his ethical behavior, basically, I'm willing to, I'm okay with the stuff of him that isn't developed, you know, that is immature. Totally fine. I'll take that. <laughs> and would it be fair to say that Shinzen, in his presentation of himself as a teacher, emphasizes his humanity? He often tells stories, for instance, of his shortcomings. More than most teachers, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, I mean, I, I videoed some of those stories, you know, and that was part of the point in those videos because when I was filming those, one of the approaches, there was kind of several, one of the approaches was to, if there was anything I felt that either needed to be talked about because he wasn't talking about it, or it needed to be talked about from his perspective 
and given us specific time focus where he could just hone in on that, then we included that. So um, now he naturally does this anyways in his Dharma talks. So it wasn't like I was just, you know, picking this stuff out. But I could pull out the, because I had been around spiritual groups for so long and seen all the different ways it could screw up, those were natural questions to ask. So there's, you know, a bunch of videos on that topic uh, around uneven development and how can teachers be enlightened and screw up. And, you know, the, I mean, the most recent one, uh, the longer, it's like 24 minutes is uh, called Towards a Balanced Enlightenment. And it's all about what we're talking about. And so I made that because I, I was in organizations where this went on, I made that a priority for that to happen. Yes, you certainly have uh, emphasized that in your YouTube channel and in your interviews with Shenzhen. You've en emphasized that theme. That's true. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious now also about Joshua Sasaki Roshi, of course, and your, your experience studying under him in that Zen context, from what I understand, quite rigorous uh, Zen training and a very highly regarded before his death, master of the tradition. But also, as we've discussed, his later life was mired with quite severe accusations of sexual assault and so on of students. Well, it wasn't a long study. I, I did one intensive at Mount Baldy with him. Uh, what I tried to do is, uh, when I started studying with Shenzhen, he would always talk about his influences. And so I would do two weeks with him, usually often here in Canada, kind of the spring and the fall. And then I would try to do a third retreat from a lineage that he had studied in. So, you know, that meant everything from Goenka to uh, Zen, in this case, Sasaki Roshi, who was available at the time. So I did an intensive with Sasaki Roshi and uh, it was great. I loved it. You know, it was, it was uh, super hard for sure. And I understand the, how things could go wrong in that kind of a system for so long, <laughs> given the, the style of Zen at the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, because I'm not in the community, I don't know uh, any of the people involved with the allegation stuff. I don't, I don't know any of that. I just have my personal experience with Sasaki Roshi to go by. And he was like, for me, for me personally, he was like the Yoda of love. I mean, I would, every time I would go in to San Zen, I would just feel blasted with love. And then I would, going out of San Zen, go back into the, the Zendo, the meditation hall, and it would be like, you know, I would be stoned, basically. <laughs> so that's the major thing I got from Sasaki was just to be hit by this wall of love over and over and over and over and over again because you get to of course in San Zen you do it three or four times a day every day with him so it's like regular blasts of love so that's that's really my own experience the Yoda of love well we're definitely dealing with difficult issues and themes I think in this conversation aren't we 
we seem to have taken that road. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think they're important. And, and again, this, the name of the game is my view is we all have uneven development of our body, mind, behavioral conditioning. And this work is about either the liberating ourselves from that body, mind, behavioral conditioning. On the one hand, the wake up piece and the grow up piece is, okay, how can we improve the content? How can we improve the body, mind conditioning and therefore improve the behavior? How can we do that? How can we improve the relationships? Where does the work least show up where we need to supplement it so that we can have a balanced spiritual practice? How do we do that? To me, that's, that's the name of the game. How can we integrate in a balanced way? How can we be better people and help make the world a better place? How can we be ethical, skillful, and loving more and more and more and more? How can we do that? Part of the reason it's a tricky theme is, as you've pointed out before, the student projects their own hopes and dreams and ambitions, if you want, on the teacher. So when the teacher as inevitably deviates from that projection, uh, when the real teacher emerges from behind the projection, of course, it's going to be different and there's going to be dissonance there. And to a greater or less I, I degree. Wouldn't, I wouldn't say the real teacher emerges i would say the uh you know the kalatia of the either the drivenness or distortion reveals itself i don't consider that the real teacher fair enough what i meant really was that the um one can have an idea of somebody uh and then one gets to know them and then what one discovers is one gets to know a person is some of it will be similar to and others different to what you imagined that's i, I mean it in that sense Definitely. Um, In a loose sense. So in that sense, you could say, well, one of the lessons there is to understand projection, one's projections and and so on. But also, of course, the other part of the other problem, I think, is that the teachers themselves very often represent traditions in which the claims the teachers make and the claims that the traditions make don't seem to hold up in sometimes the most revered masters of those traditions. And I think that can also shake people. Uh, Not only... Is it a sense of, gosh, I, you know, I can see now, I thought he was a perfect enlightened guru and how silly of me, you know, I can see my error there. And on the other hand, it's thinking, hang on a minute. And this is not just a a journeyman here. This is a great master of the tradition. And what about the tradition and uh, so on? So I think this is um, another aspect that it can be uh, quite difficult for, for people. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I have attempted to, that's why I've been working on my own curriculum for like seven years now. <laughs> and uh, I want to put it together in such a way that to save people time. It's like, this is what I would have wanted at the start when I would have started to go through all this, both the, the wake up piece, but also the psychological relational piece and how all that can be integrated in a balanced way. I think that we're we're ready for that. We need that more and more. I mean, the reason why a lot of all the quote scandals have happened is because you're right. It wasn't prominent in the tradition or it was somewhat prominent in the tradition, but the tradition was set up in a way that whatever feedback the teacher got was discounted 
by the teacher or the community in some cases. And that all needs to change. And whereabouts can people follow the development of this curriculum that you're developing? <laughs> yeah, it's always the danger of talking about it. Uh, <laughs> website or so on. Right. Well, right now, what, I, what I'm doing is I, I, uh, I work with people privately who are beta testing it, basically. So, um, so that happens. And also, I also have a... I live on this farm that's off the grid and I have a retreat cabin and people that study with me can come to the retreat cabin and they'll supervise their retreats there basically. But I, unfortunately I can only work with small numbers of people because I have other interests like my art. <laughs> so I, I do not want to spend all my time teaching and uh, this is always the problem with doing these kinds of things which is why I've been more off radar and behind the camera more is because I have a limit to the people that I can work with. However, once the curriculum is finished, uh, yeah, good question. I think it, there'll be some form of, it'll be available online in some form. I'm not sure exactly because I'm not sure that I'm the best person to do that end of things. We'll see. I don't know, but I'm just focused on finishing the curriculum for now. Um, for people that are interested in the, in the videos, it's Expand Contract on the YouTube channel. I have some other videos that I've made which are part of the curriculum, but they're not public at this point. And then for people who are interested in the Shenzhen community who don't know about it, there's a Facebook uh, Shenzhen Young Mindfulness Community. You can kind of open up that and uh, see what that's all about if you're interested uh yeah and otherwise that's about it one of the areas that i feel we didn't touch on as thoroughly as perhaps i'd have liked to is your own personal i suppose journey of practice as you have been such a dedicated practitioner of many systems seems you everything you're doing uh, you, you, you're doing with great gusto, being an artist, kundalini yogi, meditator with Shinzen system, Rinzai and Goenka, and you've done so many different things and really extraordinary uh, amount of practice and a deep practitioner in that sense. And so what could be said about your own journey, your own spiritual unfolding over these years? Yeah, I have in front of me uh, a document you can't see on my screen. It's called HBK Interview Questions to Ask Others. And there's uh, basically 12 points of questions that if I was doing a podcast and talking about these kinds of things, this is what I would like to know. This is what I would like to ask people. And your question kind of sort of fits in that in these 12 these 12 points i could ask uh, you those 12 points if you like would that be useful <laughs> i know because you're you know this is the thing it's so interesting you know i i'm an interviewer interviewing an interviewer here and your interviews are so are so fabulous so that's you know i i quite happily ask you those 12 if that seems uh useful uh sure i'll actually i'll send this i'll give this to you well when i'm listening to 
your interviews with people. Yeah. And I'm listening to other people's interviews with people like Dan Ingram or yeah. Shenzhen or anybody really. These are the kinds of questions. It's like they're not asking the kind of questions that I would ask. So I'm just going to write them down. Yeah. You know? So so this is just like a first pass on those questions. It's like if I was going to do a podcast, these would be the questions I would ask people to get things going, not necessarily literally, you know, but this is good the kind of territory that i think is useful that's not being talked about okay well i'm gonna ask you these 12 if you don't mind as, as shenzhen, shenzhen once said to me i once uh i said to shenzhen hey i'm gonna you know i've been writing about my experience this was way back when and um and i said so this was a long time ago so this is kind of revisiting it now interestingly enough with this these questions i said i think it would be great to interview people on their experiences of enlightenment and um i think it would make a great book and he said yeah you're right you're right i think it would be great and i said uh he said but if you write this book he said i want you to include your own story and i said oh no no that's not what i was thinking i want to interview other people <laughs> other people and he just said What's good for the goose is good for the gander. So, Mr. Steve, what's good for the goose is good for the gander if we're going to go through these. <laughs> okay. Well, I suppose you can't argue with, can't argue with that. Here we go. HPK, interview questions to ask others. All right. Harprakash, was there a specific occasion when stream entry, initial awakening, or enlightenment, or include the term you prefer, happened for you, or was it more gradual? If so, when and where did this occur? Describe any practices, hours put in, and other factors that might have contributed to your initial breakthrough. Yeah. So let's just be direct about all this. Uh, it was uh, I was at a Shenzhen retreat. It was around 2003. And uh, that's when that initial breakthrough happened. And it would not have happened without Shenzhen because I, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a dramatic unfolding for me at the time. And I wouldn't have had the courage or the trust to, to just really let go into the experience. And I wouldn't have had the skill to know what to do up to the letting go part. And Shenzhen was, was very, really good with that. Um, at the time, I was, I think I was sitting like 45 minutes a day or something like that. But I had started to experience the parts of the body disappearing. And I, you know, got freaked out. And I called Shenzhen, what's going on? He said, Oh, great, that sounds like Banga, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so I just continued to meditate because basically whatever I, you know, I used to call him the great leveler because whatever little reaction or freak out I would have, he would just be like, oh yeah, that's not, you know, kind of thing. And like he heard it a thousand times before and he knew the territory and all that kind of stuff. So he gave me the context so I could relax. And then when I went to that uh, retreat I mentioned where I was doing service, everything, um, everything speeded up and 
became super intense and kind of the archetypal realm opened up and there was definitely a lot of uh, material that some people might interpret as past life material. And again, I wanna be clear that when I'm describing this, this is just how it unfolded for me and it doesn't unfold this way for necessarily anybody else. It can be pretty um, undramatic when people go through this kind of experience. Uh, and, you know, I've been fortunate enough to hear it. I mean, people, if I'm assisting Shenzhen at retreats and this happens, I get to see it blow by blow or people call me up and they need to kind of integrate what happened and give it context. So that's part of the work I do. So it can look very different. So what I'm going to share there's always the danger that other people think it has to be this way and it's not it's so not that it just this is how it unfolded for me so everything started to um break up basically the impermanence theme and uh it was very difficult to function or know what was real I went through this whole stage so I would it was everything from I would sit down meditate during the meditation I would feel like I shit myself it's like what is going on so at the end of every meditation I'd like run to the bathroom pull down my pants look nothing there next meditation it would happen again this happened over and over again and then I started to lose some motor function so I remember once attempting to walk to the lunch hall and you know, every step I would feel like there was no ground and when my foot would hit, it would like radiate out in mandalas. And so I was, it was all kind of trippy and psychedelic at the time. And it took me, everybody finished lunch and then I made it to the lunch hall. So it took me that long. And when I got there, I just to take like a fork to, you know, put it in my, in my food and try to get it to my mouth. I couldn't like find my mouth. So it was both the motor and perceptual systems were being all dislodged. And it's almost like somebody went in there and like just shook everything up and rearranged stuff. And during my sits, I would have intense, intense visualizations of, you know, my kids being burnt at the stake or my wife being raped, or it was just like the most over-the-top horrific crazy things and again this doesn't happen for everybody so i met with shenzhen about five times during that retreat personally uh this is when you could go have an interview with them one-on-one it wasn't like an online thing um although you could still do that but this was like no facetime in front of him and i'd go in and he'd say oh you're at stage blah 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 and I, not being a Buddhist, I like, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what stage four and the seventh stage progression is. I have no idea. But he sounded like he knew what he was talking about. If I may interject, yeah. he was using the progress of insight map, was he? Was that the, were those the stages that he was placing you on? Well, it's a different progress of insight map, though. It's not the 16 stage that people talk about a lot. But yeah, sure, it's a progressive of insight map, you could say, yeah, sure. Um, so anyway, so this just continued and I was like being, I couldn't sleep, I was flooded with energy. So I just, 
So I might as well go in the Zendo and meditate all night, you know? So I'd sit in the Zendo and then uh, I remember one night there was, there was a big storm, thunder and lightning. And I remember like the lightning going in the top of my head and all through my body and like radiating out through the room. <laughs> it was pretty trippy. So, <laughs> and again, these dramatic things do not need to happen for people and uh, in any way. It's just what I went through at the time. Whatever my karma was, that's what was happening. So at a certain point, I felt like I was literally pushed to the edge of a cliff. So I met with Shenzhen and I said that. I feel like I'm standing at the edge of a cliff and uh, I'm going to fall. And he said, that's my wish for you, is to step off. And that didn't seem crazy at the time, the way he said it. I mean, it felt crazy when I said that to him, but his response didn't seem crazy. It seemed like, oh, okay. So I basically just let go. Whatever came up, I just let go. And then a pretty dramatic perceptual shift happened, which is still there today. And uh, I didn't know, I still didn't know what this was, by the way, I, I had no idea, but the, particularly the visual field was dramatically altered for me. And a few days after that, Shinzen called, called me up and said, hey, hey, Harpagash, how are you doing? <laughs> you went through a kind of a dramatic experience at the retreat, how are you making out, you know? And so we had that conversation. I said, what the hell happened? You know, what was it? And so he kind of affirmed that it was the equivalent of stream entry, although depending on how we want to define stream entry, if you want to talk about the path model, then maybe it was stream entry and second path. I don't know, but we could get into those details. But anyways, for so for me, um, Shenzhen was having a teacher that I could trust, that I could believe, <laughs> made a big difference in doing that. And yeah, maybe it would have happened without him, but sure felt like I was sure happy he was there. Hmm. So the next question on your list. Oh, wait a minute. Can I ask, actually, can I ask, can I ask you the same question? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's, that'll work so well because of the <laughs> way the... Uh, okay, okay, all right, you're fudging, okay. Well, <laughs> oh, maybe people because will, yeah, next... people will find that interesting. <laughs> well, it seems like we ought to continue with, with your story. But describe okay. what fundamentally, your next question on the HPK <laughs> teaching Steve how to interview list is describe what <laughs> fundamentally changed for you. Was anything about what occurred surprising or disappointing to you? Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, my, uh, yeah, a few things permanently changed for sure. Uh, so let's just talk about perception to start with. So perceptually, my, when I look out at the world, that is forever changed compared to what it was before that time. Um, and I can talk about what that's like, uh, if you like. Um, the other thing that changed was there was definitely the sense that 
oh, this is just body-mind behavioral conditioning. This thing that people call that body-mind behavioral conditioning um, a self, but it's just body-mind behavioral conditioning. And yeah, I can look at it as that, but uh, there's been a there's been a split from that where I can now be aware of that more often. And so I know that the that body mind behavioral conditioning changes all the time. And in a sense, if we want to call that body mind behavioral conditioning a self, because it's changing all the time, it's more like a selfing process that's happening. And there's more or less identification with that selfing process. So that's that's what changed as far as the perception uh, in the visual field, but also the perception of self as well. Um, yeah, we're getting into some of the other details of the questions, but we can uh, I'll keep going on the same theme. So yeah, what was surprising? Well, I had no idea. Again, it's different for different people, but you know, in this way of working where you deconstruct things, it's not uncommon for flow in Chinzan's terms or impermanence to show itself. And it's not uncommon for it to show itself in one of the auditory, visual, or somatic spaces. Uh, so for me, it was the visual space that it really opened up during that time, both the inner and outer. So, you know, see in, see out to use his terms. Uh, that changed and because it's so dramatically changed, then it's, it's, it, I can still, well, at first, when it first happened, I couldn't separate the inner from outer. It's like, I remember talking to Shenzhen. <laughs> I lost the inner and outer. I can't put it back together. <laughs> it's a very funny thing to say now, but uh, now the, in, the outer is viewed through the inner is one way to say it, or they're both part of the same field is another way to say it. Uh, and there's different, that's the field, but there's different flavors of the field that can be just like pointing my nose in that direction. There's one kind of change, point to my nose, there's another kind of change. But underneath it all is this vacuous emptiness. It's just, you know, a dance of the perceptual field in uh, visual space, basically. And yeah, anyways, so that's some of the phenomenology of the, the seeing. So that was surprising um, because I, I had peaks of that before, but I didn't, I couldn't imagine like that being the new normal. I couldn't imagine like walking around the world and at a certain scale, everything's winking in and out of existence. At another scale, you can pay attention to the content. Um, and that's, that took a while to get used to when it first started to happen. It was all very, for me, it was very magical when it first started to happen. But then, you know, I was a letter carrier. So I still had to deliver the mail. 
and uh, everything's winking in and out of existence and things are melting and morphing and shifting and you know, scintillating everywhere and all that kind of stuff. And you still got to put the right letter in the right mailbox. So that's, I still had to walk my, walk my 17 and a half kilometer mail route five days a week in the snow belt. So, so that was very good for grounding all that. <laughs> um, so that was surprising. Now disappointing was, yeah, a lot of disappointment actually, interestingly enough. Um, everything wasn't perfect. I had, even though I had studied all these traditions and screw ups and teachers, somehow I expected that if this ever happened to me, that it wouldn't be like that, that everything would be taken care of. I'd now be off the hook and I could retire to the south of France and put my feet up or something, right? So, <laughs> but that didn't happen. And as a matter of fact, it became, over time, it became more apparent how much of a screw up I was and my body mind behavioral conditioning and how I needed to really address that, the psychological and the relational, even though I'd already started that, it became even more apparent how important that was. And that's not the part of me that just wanted it to be all over and done with. It was pretty pissed off at that. <laughs> yeah, so that was disappointing. Okay, your third question is, what helped you integrate your experience? Do you have any general integration advice for others who have had a permanent breakthrough like you described? Was verification or contact with a teacher important for your integration? And if so, why? Yeah, well, having a physical job was, I think, um, really helpful to integrate this because it's can be on the perceptual end of things, it can be so strong uh, that grounding the experience is super important. Grounding the experience in the physical body, being able to use your physical body. <laughs> um, so, you know, for some people that means getting your hands in the dirt in the garden, or it means lifting weights and working out, or because I walked, you know, 17 and a half kilometers in the snow delivering mail, there's, I had no choice if I was going to do that. So if I was going to still function, which I did, um, to, I, that was wonderful to integrate it. I also am married and I have three kids at that time, three young kids. So I had to take care of the kids. I had responsibilities, you know. I mean, I remember coming back from that particular <laughs> retreat and my wife, greeted me at the door and she said, oh, no, hey, how was it? How was your retreat? And I said to her, uh, I'm a different person. She's like, cool, the garbage is piling up. Can you take it out? You know, so I had that kind of a relationship where whatever was going on, my, you know, my wife was like, whatever, you still got your responsibilities, you know, I'm going to hold you accountable, which I was grateful for. So having somebody, having accountability and embodying the experience as quick as possible, I think those are my general recommendations for people. So I have kind of recommendations before a person goes for this and then after during the integration. The before is kind of what I learned through the whole process, which is, hey, it's going to change certain things and not other things. 
So don't expect it to change everything and for everything to be perfect. You're still gonna have to do your psychological relational work. So that's my before. And then the after is, yeah, you're still gonna have to take care of the psychological relational, grounded in the body, be accountable to your responsibilities, make sure you're carrying them out. If you can't do any of that, get help. And if you can talk to somebody who's been through this kind of thing, for some people that's really helpful as well. So it was really helpful for me to talk to Shenzhen about this kind of thing. Okay, number four, what percentage of suffering would you guess has been permanently reduced as a result of your stream entry, awakening or enlightenment, or include the term you prefer, <laughs> Realization. What maybe we can uh, sidestep me having to read that list. What term should I use? Do you think? Should we stay stream entry? Yeah, uh, yeah. It depends what we're talking about. So there's the way that I've worded these is the kind of initial awakening experience. There's still more development. So that initial thing that happens. So I can talk about it. I'll get into it now. I can talk about the initial, but the later questions we'll talk about. Well, actually, what's happening for you now? which is further down the road, maybe a different stage. Have there been uh, other significant experiences like that sudden experience you just described? Uh, not to that extent, no, no. Um, not as dramatic and nothing really, yeah, I would say nothing really dramatic like that. I kind of like, it's almost like I, purged it from my system or something or it's just it's not like that it's not like that anymore for sure um yeah so that an original thing this is one of the things i always ask people when they come to me so so people come to me and they want to know if you know they've had a stream entry experience and uh so i have certain criteria that i ask people around that and uh People, I don't know why teachers don't just openly talk about this. <laughs> so this is why these questions are here. So here's some of the criteria. So I ask them, okay, what's your sense of self? That's the first question I ask them. Depending on how they answer that, then I'll you know, get more information. I'll say, has anything changed in your perceptual field? Which may or may not related, relate to that first question. But, but the big thing that I wanna know is, is there less suffering? So if we go back to what the Buddha is purported to have said, I mean, at least one of the things he's purported to have said is I teach one thing and one thing only. And that's the uh, reduction or elimination of suffering. And I wanna distinguish the suffering from pain. So the pain is the human experience, which we all have. And that's what I stress to people in the beforehand, if you're gonna go for this, you're still gonna have pain, but it will help you work through the reaction to that pain, which is the suffering, which is the second arrow. So what I wanna know is, has the suffering been reduced? So in my case, when I said, you know, I'm not sure if it was like first path or second path that happened at the same time is because there was a dramatic reduction in suffering for me overall. And I felt like I, you know, if I carried this 
bag of suffering on my back that through those experiences, this is like, you know, hard to quantify and it's just a ballpark guess, but I would say about 50% was permanently gone. So I felt 50% better all the time. <laughs> uh, so that's a question I ask people is how much does any suffering seem to be like gone now? And uh, that's one of the things I look for when I'm, when I'm uh, asking for people. Number five, describe your current sensory experience in terms of stability and change. And is this now always the case for you? Yes, it's always the case. <laughs> Everything's always changing. Sometimes things get temporarily fixated or sometimes I will uh, temporarily um, get caught in a sense in uh, a kind of fixation, but usually not for long. And so that has, that, and this is one of the reasons I, I, I postulate why the suffering gets reduced, at least in my case, talking about my case, because not only is everything changing, everything isn't hanging out for as long. So in other words, before there was something experienced that was either a version of craving or aversion, there was some pain, let's say, and, and that pain was natural, but the relationship to the pain was really unskillful. And so there was a lot of reactivity and a lot of suffering. And now the reactivity time, there's still reactivity, but way, 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 way less. And it's that lessening of reactivity that I equate with the percentage of less suffering. So things still come up, anger still comes up, all the irregular emotions still come up, but they just don't stick like they used to. Some can stick. I can still get caught in that. You know, I can still get caught in the mood, but compared to what it was before, far, far, far less. Uh, so the mostly things come up and they go pretty quickly. That's that change aspect. And they also, whatever does come up, it always feels, um, sometimes it does feel more solid, but most of the time it feels you know, spacious and empty. So if it's spacious and empty and constantly changing and not sticking, there's gonna be a whole lot less suffering. Okay, number six, how would you describe your current sense of self? Does your momentary experience have a specific orientation or vantage point? Yeah, the, so the way I would write this in my own case is I would say, how would you describe your current sense of selfing <laughs> or awareing? It would be how I think of it. Those are my, the way I think about it. Uh, it's basically, I would say it's, uh, combination of two things which is this is classic shinzen it's it's the first one is it's a uh 
the self is a sensory system and there's more or less identification with that sensory system at any given time. And so the selfing system is the changing aspect of it and the relationship to that, that's the not getting caught in that or sometimes what's called the freedom or the liberation side of things. So that some of that can change throughout the day, but either there's a direct experience of, uh, it's really just kind of uh, space and the kind of the, the field that space is made up of, you know, a, visually, we could talk about it from somatic uh, visual or the auditory, but in the visual field, just because that's what we're seeing now on the screen, uh, it's a whole bunch of flavors of flow. Everything's, you know, winking in and out of existence, or there's a billion bright field particles winking in and out of existence, or there's things melting and morphing or that kind of stuff, but it's all normalized. There's zero reactivity. When it first happened, there was a lot of reactivity happened and I really like super liked it. And now it's just like, yeah, whatever, it's the way it is, that kind of thing. Um, so, okay. Vantage point orientation, that's an interesting one because that is kind of, I would say my leading edge, so to speak. So, uh, Sometimes, sometimes there's a sense that there's a perceiver or witness or, or observer or meditator that's back here. And a good chunk of the time that's not there. And so it's just a case of, you know, do I just go about my day and I don't have a preference for either of those? Or do I want to work with that so that there's more of a what we might call non-local experience, which means the sense that there isn't that perceiver there, that whatever is being perceived happens uh, with equal value throughout the entire self and scene. And when it happens with equal value throughout the entire self and scene, then any of those sensations that usually would make up the sense of self as a meditator, they're very, very, very tiny in that vast uh, data field, basically. So it's almost like if you just, you know, you do panoramic awareness and you can hold that panoramic awareness while thoughts or emotions come up. They're so tiny in relation to that panoramic awareness that they don't, they really don't stick there's, because there's nothing, there's no grab. There's so less grab to it. There's so less clinging to it. Um, so when that's happening and there isn't the kind of behind the eyes or the sense of that uh, observer, it's just like doing whatever, you know, drinking tea, it's all normal activities. It's just a, like a perceptual thing, but definitely the experiences that it's better. 
So sometimes I work with it and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just like, you know, I deconstruct with it or I have little things I say to myself. So, you know, I occasionally if I want to work with it, it's as simple as me saying uh, non-local self-liberating. And then it's like no longer there. It's like there's a shift out of the behind the eyes meditator, this versus this looking at that subject object that goes at that point. So it's just like a little pointing out reminder. And I have, I play with that, you know, sometimes I do uh, um, non-local self-liberating joy. And then I'll flavor quote, the experience will be flavored. So the, it's like the intention, just enough to have the intention and then experience is flavored like that. And it's the same non-local experience now, but it's now got joy in it. And it's like if there's a clear glass of water and you put a drop of something in, it's gonna fill and spread throughout that clear water. So that's what the kind of the field of, I call it, my word is spaceness is like that things are arising and passing in and yeah, doing their thing. Number seven, which of your behaviors, habits, or relationships changed as a result of your breakthrough? Where do you still get caught in craving, attraction, clinging, or wanting, or aversion, ill will, fear, irritation, or annoyance? And how do you work with those? Yeah, great question. Boy, who came up with these? Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, everybody has habits they need to improve, including me. So you know, I was going to, I've been going to the gym for about two and a half years and then COVID hit and I'm basically now sitting on my ass working on my curriculum and not working out like I used to. So I'm getting fat. So yeah, I need to exercise again. I, it's really that basic. Uh, I'm not getting paid to exercise like I did for 30 years when I was a letter carrier. Now I have to have a different motivation to do that. So I need to improve those really basic things like, uh, like physical, like regular physical exercise, you know, cardio strength, all that kind of stuff. Do a little bit of that. I uh, have my art studio and I will go in there and I will do, I will dance. Uh, I like to dance. And then after I dance, and then sometimes I do a sit after I dance and sometimes I don't do a sit. Um, but that's fun. I like to make it fun. The, the exercise here. Uh, so yeah, physical. Um, recently, I've changed my diet again. I was doing a, like a vegetarian keto diet for a while. And I back then, I did that to kind of lose my belly fat, you know, to reduce my uh, metabolic risk factors for my age. But the side benefit that I hadn't anticipated was I had so much more energy and I was just super clear I could really concentrate for way more hours than I usually could so my out my behavior my productivity got way better and it's like okay if somebody could give you you know 50 extra units of clarity would you take it well that's what I got on that diet so recently I've gone back to that diet and uh, definitely noticing that so I'm working on the diet so this is basics right physical body diet um I Kind of break things into um, 
different kinds of body-mind work that can be improved. Um, so uh, if we want to say emotions in the body, then this, so this is getting into some of the uh, getting caught in craving or aversion. So I have things that I like that aren't good for me. So that's craving, basically. So usually I'm averse to a specific experience and that drives the craving. So for me, it's like eating bread and cheese, too much bread and cheese. So well, keto takes care of the bread because I'm not doing carbs, basically. <laughs> so, you know, I just buy a triple fat cheese and I'm good and I just have little bits of that. And so Anyways, so the great thing about the, the keto or meditation is that you can be aware of your urges. And then the question is, can you be skillful in relation to those urges? So that's both happens with keto. And I also do fasting sometimes where I work with the urges that come up around the, you know, the primal need to eat, for instance, that kind of thing. So I like to do that. Um, so that's how I work with, with those. Um, the, the other kinds of craving, like the attraction, that's an interesting one. So what I found over time is that my two drivers for a long time were thinking about sex and thinking about art. They were kind of central drivers for me. And, and that, that changed actually early on. So I can just kind of briefly talk about that. And then I can tell you kind of where that is now. So early on, what happened is I lost those drivers after that experience. They went away. And it's like, I remember waking up and, you know, like looking at my wife and it's like, it was like that talking head song, you know, this is not my wife, this is not my house, this is not my car kind of thing. And it's, I just like had like, who is this person kind of thing, right? <laughs> and I remember at a certain point, my wife said, you know, Harpakash, you do have a body, you know? And even though I was doing all these physical exercise at the post office, um, I still, that was part of the grounding. You know, it took a while to like, oh, yeah, okay, right. You know, I have this body and this body does certain things and there's certain uh, commitments and uh, agreements when you're married and that kind of thing. <laughs> so, so that anyway, so that left the, at that time temporarily, the urge to have any kind of sex or the attraction around sex was gone, but also the urge around art. And so I called Shenzhen. And I basically said, you know, what the fuck is happening here? It's like these two things are gone. And Jensen said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, so one of two things will happen. He said, either they'll be gone forever and you need to, you know, accept that. If it is gone forever, then something else magical will come to replace it. Or they'll come back, but they'll come back in a different, more magical way. And that's what happened. They, they came back in a, quote, more magical way, or I would say more fully present way is what he meant by that. And that's the experience. But the urge behind those is dramatically reduced compared to what it was before. So before where I used to think about sex a lot, I 
barely occasionally I think about sex but not compared to before it's like oh my god this is just like feels like it's gone it's not gone but it feels like it's gone in comparison and uh the art was impacted um art has kind of taken uh second place I would say to uh, passing on what I've learned for, for to others, you know, making my curriculum, doing the videos. For years when I did those videos, I just stopped doing art, the expand contract videos. Now the arts, it, it comes back, it's back actually, I'm still working on art, but not like before. It doesn't have that drivenness and the art is different as well than it was before. So, so that's definitely changed. Sometimes what I do, I have a whole like actually spreadsheet that I use with uh, habits and behaviors where I attempt to track it from the earliest, from where it comes out and then how it, how it fabricates. I have, a, I have a kind of a chart and then I have a spreadsheet. I have a diagram I could, I could show you. <laughs> Anyways, uh, it starts from the, um, I'll actually briefly, briefly go over it. So it's what I call the fabrication cycle, which is related to dependent origination. It's just done for a Western, for somebody that doesn't want to do like, you know, think about tied to past lives and all that kind of stuff because I don't interpret things that way. Is it a diagram? I've made you co-host, so you should be able to share your screen if you want. Well, yeah, sure, I could share it. This is what I call the fabrication cycle. It's pretty simple. Um, this is like the how I first introduce it in my curriculum, and then I get into much more detail in the early stages, and then some of the later stages I unpack more. But this is the basic intro. Something happens outside, an external event, a person says something to you, or that doesn't happen, just something arises internally. That is going to either by the arising itself internally or the external stimuli, it's going to create either a see or a hear or a feel or a see here, feel in or feel out. It's going to create one of those to start with at an early processing. But very quickly, that's going to spread out is usually what happens, although it doesn't have to. It spreads out into see here, feel combinations. And if that's experienced with enough mindful awareness or concentration, clarity, and equanimity, then you could process that on the spot. Now, you could also process it earlier with concentration, clarity, and equanimity. So I don't want to give number four here on the clock that it only happens here. It happens anywhere during the fabrication cycle. I just put it here to because this is a common place where people can, uh, it's located where people, it's most useful for people when they start to work this way, to unpack things. Now, if it's experienced with the flip side of concentration, clarity, and equanimity, so the mula klesha, traditionally it's sometimes called, the root repression, drivenness, and distortion, we could say our craving, aversion, unconsciousness, then that's going to lead if it's the mulaclasia into the maladaptive, basically negative moods, negative attitudes, uh, either negative thinking or um, 
thinking that's just kind of like monkey mind spinning out negative emotions, for instance. However, equally, if you experience it with enough concentration, clarity, and equanimity, it could be an adaptive fabrication. So this isn't all about the negative. It's just the valence on it and our relationship to it. So if it's the maladaptive, it will drive maladaptive behaviors unless you catch it in the body-mind sensory experience, it's going to lead to behaviors. So it's gonna go from five to six. Or if it's a mindful awareness or a wholesome kind of skillful relationship you have with that, then it's going to be adaptive moods and attitudes, adaptive thinking, adaptive emotions. And that's going to motivate adaptive behaviors as opposed to maladaptive behaviors. So this is kind of the basics. And so what I do myself and what I teach people to do is catch it where you catch it. And then can you back it up and catch, begin to catch it earlier and earlier in the fabrication cycle? And ultimately, what are your tools and options at any of these given stages? Can you get good at that? So anyway, so this is kind of the, one of the major ways that I myself process um, creating a version. Uh, and it's just something that felt natural to me. So I thought, well, okay, well, let me, you know, let me put it in a, a diagram and share it with other people and lots of other people find it useful. So they look at this, they figure it out and they just use like a, a Google Sheets, a Google spreadsheet basically with these kinds of categories and they begin to track common behaviors, common habits uh, or situations that trigger them. They track all that stuff and they just get a handle on it over time. They go back to it over and over. So particularly reactions that repeat are great to work with. Habits that repeat are great to work with. And you just go back to them over and over and you fill up more detail as you go. And, uh, and that makes the number four here, that makes the unconscious more clear or it makes the unconscious more conscious is a way to say that. So make sense? Very interesting. So that's somehow how I work with the craving in a version. Mm -hmm. And number eight on your list. Which and the unconsciousness. <laughs> yes. Number eight on your list. Which qualities or capacities would you like to improve? I think the improve all of the wholesome qualities. Let's just say that from the get-go. And the thing I need to remind myself of is, uh, and this again is part of the leading edge of my practice as well, is that, yeah, emptiness can be flavored with anything. So what am I flavoring it with? Either the flavoring is unintentional or it's intentional. <laughs> if it's uh, unintentional, but it's good, and I recognize that, great, go with it. If it's unintentional and it's not so good, then can I just drop it? Can I catch it earlier in the fabrication cycle? And then just, if I'm particularly when I'm with somebody else, can I flavor it with a wholesome quality? When I'm not with somebody else, I'm not so... Uh, don't need to do that as much, or I don't think that's, I mean, I can do that and sometimes it's useful, but I think it's just more useful when you're with another person to be able to come from a place of love that they can feel, caring that they can feel. Uh, so that's 
doing more of that definitely and i think capacity well sharing this stuff with others definitely so getting more skillful at that the thing i'm fortunate with in doing the kind of curriculum that i mentioned is because i'm working with people i have constant feedback from them and so i can tweak whatever's needs to be tweaked and because i work with people uh, in this case, pretty much two full days a week, I get constant feedback and for year after year after year after year, which is, which is of course the, the, you know, the way of Shenzhen worked, the way that he worked a lot, that interactive way that builds the system and refines the system as it needs to get refined. So I wanna continue with that. And then to just have better relationships all around. You know, and so one of the things I've been doing is looking at my tendencies, my attachment strategy tendencies, and those other people around me. And so once you do that, it's kind of like just working with different different typologies, basically. And if I get better at mine, but I also get better at recognizing the other person's typology. Uh, let's say my wife, for instance, and then it's like, oh, I don't have to take that personally. That's just her typology kind of thing. <laughs> that's her attachment strategy. <laughs> um, so that's as far as the relationships. Do you think the attachment stuff has been helpful? Number nine, what do you think is the biggest misunderstanding people have regarding someone who has experienced uh, stream entry awakening or enlightenment? Uh, yeah, I would say there's a couple. One is um it it can tend to trigger a person's inferiority complex when they're around somebody or or you know sometimes attracted to somebody who has for whatever reason has some kind of a status or label or um attainment attached to them <laughs> And, and that's not true. Really, you know, there's nobody's, that person isn't better than you. So that's the first point. So, you know, let's hopefully not have that. But the other thing is that, that that person, because they have some depth of liberation, that that person is balanced, that that person is mature in all areas. Uh, that's huge. That's a huge thing. And uh, that's something that I emphasize a lot is this, we all have uneven development. We are all immature in certain areas and I haven't met anybody who hasn't been like that so far, so. Number 10, what is something about your history or an unusual or quirky thing you like to do that others might be surprised to hear? <sighs> I'm laughing because uh, of course, these were questions to ask other people. And it's like, yeah, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So here we go. <laughs> okay. Um, boy, I could come up with a lot of quirky things. I'm pretty quirky. Uh, I live, although I'm married, I live most of the time. Most of the time I'm by myself. Let's put it that way. My wife works a lot out of the house a lot on the farm. Um, so when I'm by myself, uh, 
I do a lot of quirky things. So I will, um, so, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll walk around in a funny way, like I'll just let go of any kind of uh, way that the body usually holds itself or the way that the seeing usually sees, uh, or I'll just spontaneously make, you know, weird noises or funny noises, or I'll dance and move and kind of really freeform odd ways that other people might think are odd. So that's, uh, I mean, that's some of this stuff. And then probably what I think people who are watching your channel don't know about me is kind of the art side of things that I do. And I have two parts to me. I have like a very conservative side. You know, I photographed the same black walnut tree for like six years. For instance, most days I photograph that tree. So that's one side and a lot of people can relate to a tree but the other side is more provocative um, sometimes i'll do installations that are provocative uh, i did an installation that included you know the topics of kind of like death and evil and there were swastikas and there was like a video of my brain kind of you know <laughs> um, from a study at harvard a meditation study at harvard that i was a part of way back when and uh, most people don't know that about me. Usually the people on the art side know that, know the art part of me. The people on the meditation side know the meditation side. And most people don't have a foot in each of those. So number 11, how are you helping others in the world? How much of that was already happening before stream entry, awakening or enlightenment? What is the legacy you'd like to leave behind? Yeah, even the way that that, uh, that question is, is written, um, I, I can, I can you know, perfectly well say it like that and answer it like that. And I can say it. Um, I remember once I was teaching, a, doing a mindfulness class early on when I was working with Shenzhen, kind of after this, I had this shift. And I remember looking at everybody and thinking, how can I help? this, I was looking at other people, but I, what I was thinking was, how can I help this larger part of myself realize that it's already liberated? And there was a real palpable sense of that. So I could say, yeah, helping others in the world, we could talk about it in the conventional terms, or we could also talk about it from this other place. It's like, how could I help the part of the larger self? How am I doing that? So. So for me, it's, I decided, I gave myself this assignment to in, under the guise of 40 classes to leave behind what I wanted to around the integration of uh, spirituality and psychology relationships. So that's what this mindfulness curriculum is all about. That's my attempt to do that. So, you know, uh, so there's, that's a big one. But the other one is the, is the art. Um, I'm, because I love beauty, it's just, you know, I'm, that's, I go back to it over and over again. And so how can I share ways of seeing and being in relationship that 
either emphasize the beauty in a way that perhaps leads others towards that same experience or leads others towards a what I call aesthetic arrest, which is like a momentary merger with what's being experienced. Or I get people to think about stuff like more of the provocative stuff. Think about their, basically their, the mula clashas and how the craving, aversion and unconsciousness expresses itself in us and in the larger culture. So that's what usually the provocative work is pointing towards too. So it's for, you know, it, this, the, this, my spiritual trajectory always seems to be reflected in the art. So I just can't get away from it. You know, it's like, I can't really do something that doesn't feel like it's also somehow expressing the work. Yeah, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to finish that, you know, before I die, basically. <laughs> my joke around the curriculum is that I'll finish the curriculum in less time than Shenzhen is finishing his 2.0 version. <laughs> so, which he may never, I don't think he'll finish ever. <laughs> Number 12. Is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah, I guess uh, just part of the legacy thing, another piece is just to be, you know, a good partner, good partner to my wife and a good example. Um, not to be a goody goody, but because I still want to share my quirks, I'm fine with that. And uh, I'm still the, you know, the artist, I give the artist lots of leeway, and lots of license, which is great. But I also want to be, be able to be a good example of living ethically. I mean, we're, you know, live on a farm, we're off the grid, we create our own power, we show people what can be done. Not to say that what we're doing is the answer. I actually don't think it is. I think it's communities who are sharing more. We're kind of like, you know, the, the pioneer version of one unit doing it. I think there has to be a whole bunch of units that are tied together. That's the way actually. Um, so I want to be an example to other people the best I can, given all my quirks and given all my, uh, you know, art proclivities <laughs> um, to be provocative. Uh, but I, I also, you know, I want to be good to my kids, have a good relationship with them, which I think I do. And uh, I have a new grandchild. So just, you know, be enjoying my grandchild and also just like love everybody. Yeah. Well, Harper Cash, those are your 12 questions, interview questions to ask others. <laughs> <laughs> These questions originally came out of, it was combination. It was combination of what I mentioned earlier when I said, these are some of the questions or versions of this, I'd like to hear them being asked because I don't hear them being asked very often. Yeah. This, this specifically, it's almost like these, how these different talk about these different facets basically i don't hear that very often and then it was also these came from people coming to me and saying hey i've had this experience or whatever you know is there any kind of context you can give me or how can i integrate this or you know what do i need to be doing kind of thing and uh so it also came from that place too 
So those were the kinds of people that were coming to me. Harper Crash, thank you for this uh, fascinating conversation. Harper Crash, thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.